It makes my job easier. I'm glad for that. Uh, it is really good to see each of you. Uh, this is clearly uh, biblical counseling and the doctrine of God is our topic this evening. I, I really am. I, I'm delighted that you're here. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Randy Barlow. I've recently been appointed as the senior pastor at Calvary Bible Church. Dan Kirk was our pastor for uh, 28 years, I think, um, and he's a faithful, faithful brother. But th- for those of you who don't know, uh, he is was recently diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. Um, so just a remarkable stroke of God's providence and uh, has sort of shocked all of us. But this lecture uh, sort of has been burst out of that uh, event for me. Uh, you, you all have situations in your life where you sort of scratch your head and you think, God, what are you doing here? And many of you are, uh, maybe I should ask you, uh, how many of you are counseling right now on a regular basis? Okay, that's a good number. How many of you are, are actively making disciples? Okay, good. I hope all of you are. That's part of your job description. Yeah, that's right. This is your mandate. You don't have an option for that one. But our, our hope for this conference is that you will leave here more convinced, one, that that is your mandate, uh, more convinced, two, that God's word is sufficient to help you in that endeavor, and third, more convinced that really God is willing and delights to use weak, ordinary people like you and like me to do that work. Uh, this is the wonder of being a Christian, is that God uses simple uh, people like us who aren't fully qualified or who aren't uh, as educated as maybe we need to be, or pick your, your excuse, or pick your weakness, and God uses us to do his work. We just want to be uh, as sharp as we can be, uh, really in a world that is utterly confused about who God is, Right? Uh, one of our great privileges, maybe the great privilege, privilege of being a counselor, Christian discipler, is that we have the, the unique privilege of setting God before our counselees, setting God before our disciples, and coming to them in times of really of, of inexplainable or unexplainable um, painful providences, such as an Alzheimer's diagnosis. And trying to help our people understand what might God be doing, uh, but mainly this God who ordains first, this God has ordained everything, and he's sovereign, he's good, and he's wise and can be trusted. Uh, And we find ourselves over and over in situations where we minister these same truths because the world is is really fueled by what people believe about God. And we're going to talk about that. And my objective in this uh, lecture uh, is to really to help you, give you some more tools as you're ministering the word to people and so that you can help them really to set God before them so that they can live uh, lives that are glorifying, honoring to him. Uh, but you, you do know, certainly, uh, that the world is confused about God. I don't know when the last time you had a conversation with your neighbor about that. Uh, I had one last week. Uh, and we were out, our kids were playing, and uh, I just, these were new neighbors, and so I went over and just broached a conversation with them, and, you know, you're always sort of working, looking for that opportunity 
where you can talk about the most important things in the world. And we did, and uh, his approach was not unlike the approach of many, but it was an eclectic approach. So he and his family, his wife specifically, traveled all over the world and with one agenda, primarily, uh, to figure out what all these cultures believed about God. Right? And so what they've done is kind of like a salad bar or like a buffet. So he sort of has picked his favorite facets of each uh, theological construction from different cultures and has made that his own theology. Uh, and the one thing he, wouldn't, uh, he didn't want to hear is anyone saying, this is true. Right? This is what reality is. This is who God is definitively. Right? He was happy to sort of go back and forth about uh, potentials and, and speculate about some things, but no, he didn't want anyone to say, this is who God is. Um, and so it really, he, he sort of has formed a God of his own imagination. Now that's problematic right, for a number of reasons, for his eternity, but how does that affect his present? Right? If you formulate a God of your own imagination, I want you guys, I'm going to ask you some questions and I would like for you to contribute a bit. Uh, how does your view of God affect how you live your life? If you take an eclectic approach of God, how does that shape how you live? An eclectic approach to the way you live. I mean, it's going to be an eclectic approach to your life. If you're just picking and choosing these different things, then you're going to pick and choose your life. Yeah, that's, that's true. Your God's going to change as you're changing. Yeah, that's true. That's right. It changes based on my own whim. Yeah, and I think you're onto it there. Uh, go, go ahead. Yes, yeah, that sort of dovetails with what I think. What's your name? Dave. Dave. Um, yeah, I want a God who is uh, permissive of anything I want to do, who helps me when I need him or when I need his help, uh, but he lets me do whatever I want to do. And really, who is God in that scenario? Me. Right, me. And, and that produces a life uh, that we're going to see that is disordered, chaotic. And these are the kind of people who come and... Hey, will you help me? My wife has left. Uh, I'm enslaved to pornography. Um, I can't stop being angry. I've just been fired because I, you know, I did X, Y, or Z. These are the kind of people who are going to come to you, and you know this. They come to you for help. And they just want, what do they want? You tell me, what do they want? A quick fix. Right? Give me three scriptures, and, and that'll take care of it. Yes. Yeah, that's also true. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, just tell me that I'm not the problem, that someone else is the problem. Agree with me my, that my wife or my husband is really the issue, right? Uh, but we have the, the high calling of, of setting them straight on that. And not based on our own authority, right? But based on what? On the Word of God, right? Well, speaking of the Word of God, turn with me to Romans chapter 1. I want to just sort of set us up here. Um, it just seems that we, the, the world has not changed, the culture has not changed, uh, men have not changed. All the way back in Romans 1, uh, you're familiar with this section of Scripture, Romans 1.18. 
uh, we see that man's default is really to fashion a God in his own imagination. Uh, from the beginning, this is the way that it's been. But it goes all the way back to Romans 1.18. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. One thing is striking there is that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They, they know there is a God, but they suppress the truth. The imagery there is kind of like when you're in the swimming pool and you have a volleyball uh, and you try to hide it, right? You push it down and then it comes back up, right? No matter how often you try to hide it, and what usually happens in someone's life is they push that knowledge of God down, they suppress it. They know it's there, even if they say they're an atheist or agnostic. They know that God is there, but then when life's difficulties come, it's like the volleyball is popping up. They know something is wrong. They know something's bigger than them that has just happened. And what's going on in their life is inexplicable to them. And so they're looking for an explanation often. But here, rather, in, in verse 19, uh, this is actually, he's talking about that suppressing dynamic where they push God down in their own mind, uh, even though they know God is true, verse 19. And then verse 20, for since the creation of the world... Uh, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. In other words, God has made his presence and his uh, existence known. Right? Everyone knows God exists. Right? If someone tells you they're an atheist, they're also a liar. They know God exists. They're just suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Uh, so with my neighbor, I said, I said, friend, in what you just told me, um, well, he kept, let me say this, he kept saying, um, and I'm praying for him, I hope he repents, but he kept saying, we're the same. You know, we're, we're essentially the same. All right, you believe in this truth, you believe the Bible is God's word, I believe this. Right, we're essentially the same. And I said, I, I think in, one, in a lot of ways we are essentially the same. Um, we both know God exists. And he said, well, you know, I, and he kind of squirmed a little bit. And I said, hey, I know you know. <laughs> I know you know. Right? What happens when life is really hard for you? And he sort of bowed his head and he said, well, I mean, I guess I do just sort of, uh, you know, almost every day I say, God, help me today. <laughs> you know, this is the way it goes. The volleyball is going to come up, right? Uh, but we want to help people see that there's a, a volleyball there. Right? God does exist. Uh, verse 20, he goes on, he says, what has, can be known about God has been clearly seen, being understood uh, through what has been made, so they are without excuse. All right, what's a good Old Testament reference to support that same principle? Yeah, that's right. The heavens declare the glory of God. It's interesting. The word there is declare. The word for declare is like a scribe. Like it's written out in the heavens. God's glory. It's there. Everyone knows it's there. So he says there without excuse. Everyone knows. And then verse 21 is what I want us to look at. Verse 21. For even though they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, they prefer to speculate about what God might be like than bow to the revelation of who God really is. All right? It's a fundamental problem. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. This is an arrogant rejection of the person of God. All right? 
It really it's more of a suppression of God. And then verse 23. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling things. All right. So they exchanged the glory of God for an image of something. What was that image of? Verse 23. Creation, man and animals. Uh, this is a really important uh, theological point I'm about to make. They decided, rather than worship the invisible God, they were going to worship something that was like them. But really, he emphasizes uh, that it's birds, four-footed animals, crawling things. Right, so there's this kind of like animals. This is this is what they're worshiping. Now, there is a principle all throughout Scripture, and it's this. You become like what you worship, right? You become like what you worship. Now, look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their own hearts to impurity. So God removes his grace from them. They reject him. God removes his grace. And then notice, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Verse 26. And then he goes on to describe what that looked like. And a simple way to put this is they started worshiping animals. And what did they become? Animals. Right? They, they no longer lived imaging God's glory. Uh, they started imaging the thing they worshipped, which was animals. And, and often, uh, people are going to come to you. You're going to hear their story, and you guys have done this. You hear their story, and you think, you're not living like a creature made in God's image. Right? You're going from one passion to the other. And, and you're make, you know, all along the way, there's this trail of destruction because you're living like a wild animal or like a dog in heat. And you need to change, right? And praise God, I'm here to help you with that. <laughs> um, but this wrecks havoc in people's lives. So the principle is you become like what you worship. But we could put it another way. And this is sort of fundamental for this lecture. What you think about God determines how you live. What you think about God determines how you live. And that is absolutely vital in the counseling room. Right? People are going to come and do come to you, and their thoughts of God are totally, totally off base. And our job is to help change that, help correct that. Now, what I'm afraid of, uh, what I fear a little bit, is that sometimes we are, we are all about application, right, as counselors typically. You know, we're all about, okay, you come to me, this is the problem. Okay, here's what you need to do. This, this, and this. And in our effort to get people doing the right thing, uh, we might jump too quickly uh, to just this superficial um, imperative. Go do this without correcting that heart worship of our counselees, without setting God before them aright. And what I want to do really in this lecture is to help us think about this and help give you some ammunition 
uh, to see how you can really put theology to work in your counselee's life. All right. So jump with me. I want to show you the problem. All right. What's the problem? What is the problem? Well, of course, there's a problem with the knowledge of God. We don't know God. But amazingly, if you jump over a couple of chapters into Romans 3, uh, verse 10, Paul gives this list of the problem of humanity. This is actually the text of Scripture that I was in when the Lord awakened my conscience. I was blind to my sin, and I came to this passage, and I remember reading it, and I put a big box around it, and I I wrote out, this is who I am. This was God's evaluation of me and my sin. There is none righteous, no, not one. And I'm going to jump down um, just sort of through this text because we don't have time to cover all the texts I'd like to look at. And there's none righteous, no, not one. Uh, no one who seeks for God. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Uh, their mouths, verse 14, are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Right? This is the way of living a life with a wrong view of God, essentially. And notice the culmination of this litany of accusations of man. What's verse 18 say? There is no fear of God uh, before their eyes. It's amazing. All of these things, all of this analysis of what's wrong with man, and the culminating problem is that there is no fear of God before their eyes. So when people come to us uh, with all their problems we can deduce that there is an insufficient fear problem, right? Even if they come to us with an anxiety problem, right? There's an insufficient fear problem, right? They don't fear God to the level that they ought, all right? And we're going to, I'm going to hopefully prove that to you. So hang in there with me if you're thinking, this guy's kind of crazy. This is Paul's culminating analysis. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, let me give you, a little bit of a definition here of what the fear of God is. First, the fear of God is reverential awe of his majesty, right? Reverential awe of his majesty. And largely, Romans 1 is speaking to that. Uh, They exchange the glory of God for a lesser thing. Uh, Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, this is really like a, a paternal fear, less of a... Uh, what the Puritans call the servile fear, right? Where the fear of a servant. This is the fear of a father, right? Proverbs one seven. When you fear God, that's the beginning of knowledge. You have a proper view of Him, and that's really from Jeremiah thirty two forty. I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And then notice, He'll do what? I will put the fear of me in their heart, right? That wasn't just your mom trying to accomplish that, right? This is God's agenda uh, in the new covenant, is to put the fear of him in your heart, all right? Now, we could say as counselors and disciples, that's what we want to do with our counselees, put the fear of God in them, (laughs) all right? Uh, Really with the reverential awe. But there's a second dynamic, and that is the dread of God's righteous judgments, this is one we don't think about often. We try to say we shouldn't. You know, we try to, we're in, Jesus has forgiven us, so we move on. We don't want to think about the dread of God's righteous judgment. Well, it's true that in Christ, we don't have to bear that. Uh, amen? amen? Praise the Lord. 
but actually, Scripture brings that to bear to motivate us to live faithfully, which is amazing. And I'll show you one of those later on. Um, but the dread of his righteous judgment. Hebrews 10.31, this is one of the warning passages that are so powerful in the book of Hebrews. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. All right. In a minute, we'll look at 1 Peter 1, 17 and see that God uses this same fear, dread, fear, to motivate Christians to be holy. All right. Well, I'll show you that. But to put it in a word, the fear of God is the only proper response to God's person. The only proper way to respond to God's attributes is to fear him. All right. All right. So what is the result then of a world that does not fear God? Well, the answer to that is a world that is in disarray. And that's kind of an understatement, right? Confusion, chaos, disorder. All of that results from living a life without the fear of God. It's striking. The scriptures speak specifically to this of what results from living with a lack of fear. And the person who comes to us without a proper fear of God, first, he lacks wisdom, right? He lacks wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or beginning of wisdom. Uh, what is wisdom? Application of knowledge. Application of knowledge. Yeah. Uh, you could put it another way. It's skill for living. Skill for living life in God's world. That'd probably be an adequate definition. So the person who doesn't fear God lacks the skill for living in God's world. All right. They're like a, a, a welder who doesn't know how to weld, right? So they go to the job, they, they get it, they sign up for, uh, you know, they fill out the application, they make all these claims, yeah, I'm a welder, I can weld, I can do all this stuff. Um, they get on site in the job, and they're given a, you know, the welding equipment. My dad was a welder, this is why this is familiar to me. Uh, they're given the equipment, and uh, here, you know, here they've got the project, maybe it's a pipeline, and their job is to bring these pipes together. And the guy sits down and, you know, he starts clamping stuff together here and there. And, you know, it it wouldn't take long at all for everyone to look at this guy and say, he doesn't have the skill for this job, right? The person who has no fear of God doesn't have the skill to live in God's world. We have that. And our, our responsibility and great joy is to help people acquire that. But people who lack fear of God, they lack wisdom. They also are pursued... Uh, by evil, but they also pursue evil, and they deceive themselves by sin. Uh, Proverbs 16.6, By the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. No fear of the Lord, you don't keep away from evil. A great passage for this. Uh, Just flip over there really quickly with me. Psalm 36. This is actually what Paul is quoting in Romans 3. Psalms 36 says, Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. All right, here's the ungodly person. Transgression speaks to them within their heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. What's the consequence? It flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his own iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. And he goes on. And this is the consequence of not having fear. You pursue evil and you live a life of deception. And this is true, right? You've seen that in 
counselees and disciplees' lives. Uh, the person who lacks proper fear, he lives with multiplied sorrows. Uh, he's pursued by adversity. Right? These are things that uh, are true of the person who has no fear. Now, I have to move on uh, because I'm running out of time already. Uh, but this is the situation of someone who does not know God. Now, what's the solution, right? What is the solution to this problem? Well, the answer to the solution to the problem, rather, is we introduce them to God, right? We introduce them to God. We first, uh, Proverbs 9 says, we instill in them a knowledge and fear of God. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It's fascinating. The fear of the Lord and the knowledge of the Lord are juxtaposed and are essentially synonymous here. right? The fear of the Lord, the knowledge of the Lord are the same thing. I want you to turn to Isaiah 6. So a good question to ask yourself when you're sitting across from a counselee or disciple is, do they properly fear God? Do they have a right knowledge of God? And if your answer is no, and we can all, uh, we would all do well to have our theology more refined by Scripture. Right? We're always growing in our understanding of God. None of us have arrived yet. Um, if the answer is no, you want to set yourself to make sure they come to know God, right? They know they have a right view of God. Isaiah 6 is, is really a paradigmatic text for this. Um, in the year, you guys know this passage, Isaiah 6, 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, King Uzziah died, or his death, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. All right, here's Isaiah. He's a prophet. Uzziah, the king in Judea, has been or Judah has been the king for 50 years. Total stability, everything's going well. And then all of a sudden the king dies. The question is, what's going to happen now? What are we going to do? Right, everything that's been so stable for so long is now turned upside down. And Isaiah is introduced afresh to the living God. He says, I saw the Lord, verse 1, sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. The train of his robe filled the temple. And he goes on to describe God, describe the the, uh, foundations of the temple shaking as Isaiah sees God. He comes to know God in a a fresh way, uh, in a new way, and he sees God. That's verses verses 1 to 4. He's coming to know God, specifically verse 3. As what? What do we see in verse 3? Holy, holy, holy. Right? This is God. This is God. He's a holy God. And then, what is Isaiah's response in verse 5? Woe is me. Woe is me. For I am ruined. We would call that fear. Right? He's fearful. He's afraid. Right? This is holy dread. Uh, I am ruined. He's going to utterly judge me. I know myself. And in verse 7, God comes and graciously takes away his iniquity, atones for his sin. And we could, we could say 
Uh, this is, it doesn't say this explicitly, but what is the result of forgiven sins? What does that do to your heart? Affections, right? You love that person. So verse 7 would be love. And then verse 8, he sits around and he contemplates how wonderful and holy God is and goes off by himself and does his own thing. No, verse 8 says what? God says, uh, who will I send? Who, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. This is joyful, total, entire obedience to the king. All right, so I have a little bit of a, a I, I've kind of captured this here. Um, a right understanding of knowledge of God produces appropriate fear of God, which produces a love for God, which produces joyful obedience. Right? Oftentimes, all you want to do is just grab your counsel and say, just trust God and obey. Just do it, right? Stop that and start this, right? Stop doubting and start trusting. Um, well, Isaiah really gives us the formula for that. So what we want to do with counselees is we want to establish a proper knowledge of God. All right? Uh, that leads, in turn, to fearing God accurately, properly. Right? You won't trust and obey a God you don't know. Right? Uh, you won't fear a God you won't know. You will be flippant with him. Right? You will treat him just like you treat a friend. You'll say, well, yeah, I can pick from this God or that God. But if you come to know the living God like Isaiah came to know him, you don't have the buffet option anymore. Right? You're face-to-face with the God. Well, the consequence of that is loving God. Right? Once you come to know God, you see that God is immensely righteous and holy, but gracious and merciful and patient and abounding in steadfast love. And you can't help but love him and live for him. All right, you trust and obey him, and ultimately God gets the glory for that. You won't trust and obey a God you don't love, and you won't rightly love a God you don't know and fear. All right, so counsel, he comes to you and you're like, hey, this is easy. Trust and obey God. All right, now here's, let me give you this assignment. Go do this thing. Well, what we want to do is sort of step back, and what we want to work towards is, uh, helping them to come to know God, that first brick, knowing God. You want to bring them face to face with the living God so that they will fear him and love him and then trust and obey him. Right? And then God will get the glory he's worthy to receive. All right? Now, just to be clear, that starts with you and I, right? You have to be doing that yourself. Um, Jeremiah says, the greatest boast that anyone should have is that they understand and know God. Right? You're dealing with a proud person, boastful person, self-absorbed person. The remedy? Introduce them to the living God. Right? And all of a sudden, the proud person uh, boasts no more. Right? Right? So let's walk through this together. All right? What I want to do moving forward uh, as we go along here is I want to introduce just an attribute of God and I want to sort of uh, work at putting this into practice. All right? How would we take something like the judgment or the justice of God and put that to work in a counselee's life? Well, let me give you first the doctrine. All right? Here's the doctrine. 
the doctrine is formed off of a series of texts, of course. There's a lot more than this. But God's ways are perfect, and he will always execute perfect justice. It's Deuteronomy 32.4. God has no part in unrighteousness or partiality. 2 Chronicles 19.7. And then this last one. You guys probably know Hebrews 9.27. What does that say? Yeah, yeah. It's appointed for man once to die. And then the what? Judgment. All right? Now, it's amazing. If you look at Jesus' ministry, he uses the justice, the judgment, the righteousness of God. He puts that theology to work in the life of his disciples. Right? You see that in John 15. Uh, you see that throughout uh, with the Pharisees, where Jesus is rebuking them. Uh, you see this. And every Christian should live with a sober, reverent uh, re- uh, mindfulness. There's my word. Mindfulness that we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Second Corinthians 5, 9 is one of our key biblical counseling texts, right? Which says, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Yes, that's right. Whether we're at home or away, we make it our ambition to please him. Verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The Bema seat, right? his exalted judgment seat, where we'll all stand and we'll give an account for our works. I don't know how that makes you feel, but it sort of gives me a, a, a real nice kick in the pants when I'm feeling lazy to know I'm going to stand before the Lord and give an account for how I'm laboring for him. The other part of that, 1 Corinthians 3, is he will not miss any of your good works. Those hidden works that you're doing, those late night counseling sessions, that late night phone call, no one knows about that. You don't have to go tell people about that. Jesus says if you do that, you lose your heavenly reward. So don't call people and tell them what you did. No, God knows. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You have heavenly treasure being stored up. I often, I see people working around our church. No one knows they're here. Uh, you know, I'm here at these strange hours because I'm trying to write sermons and do other things. And I see these secret servants going around our church doing things. And I, I often want to go up to them. I haven't done this yet, but I want to go up to them and I want to say, I know what you're doing. Not You're not just sweeping here. You're storing up uh, heavenly treasure. I know what you're doing. Your father who sees in secret, he knows. He knows it. Well, we all will stand before the, the judgment seat of God. Now, how do we put that reality uh, into practice? Let's say with pornography. All right, this is a ubiquitous problem uh, with men and women. Uh, how do we put that theology of judgment and justice? Right, how do we put that into practice? How do we put that theology to work in the life of a counselee? What you got? I mean, I can ask you another question. How does Jesus put that theology to work? Well, I'm the lecturer, so I'll tell you. <laughs> Matthew 5, 27 to 30. All right, we call this radical amputation. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then notice this. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. 
If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. That is powerful, isn't it? Right, you got a guy who keeps looking at pornography. A woman who keeps looking at pornography. Well, the first thing you should do in that session is your first meeting with them is you should work at radically amputating, meaning you should cut off any access to it, but they keep looking at pornography. What I will typically do, uh, even in that first session, is I will open up Matthew 5, I read this passage, and I tell them, if you don't stop looking at pornography, you will go to hell. If you don't stop, you go to hell. Now, that's powerful, all right? And I understand that you're probably thinking, well, justification by faith alone. I am too. Uh, But in that moment, I am putting this theology to work, just like Jesus did. Right? This is what Jesus is saying. If you don't stop that, you go to hell. It's better for you to cut off your hand or cut off your foot and limp around or cut off, pluck out your eye and limp around in this life than spend eternity in hell with all your faculties. Right? That is really powerful. Uh, and I want to put the fear of God in them, right? That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to help them see this is not just, oh, everybody's looking at pornography. It's not a big deal. No. Heaven and hell are on the line here, all right? Now, what happens if you tell a Christian that? How do you think they respond? <laughs> okay, I want to be with the Lord. You know, I want to follow him. Uh, let me get rid of this. Let me fight with all my power. I'm ready to cut it. What do I need to get rid of? I need to get rid of the iPad. I get rid of the computer. Whatever I need to do, you tell me. And it's gone. The guy who's not a Christian will say, "Ah, man, my whole world is in this thing. I'm going to have a a flip phone. No one else has a flip phone. Um, Well, everyone else has two eyes, right? Uh, But Jesus said you need to pluck it out, right, if you want to go to heaven. In this specific way, if you want to get rid of this sin, you have to pluck out your eye. Uh, And that looks like you getting rid of this iPad. Now I'm getting on a tangent here because this is something I deal with a lot. Um, Okay, let me get back on my trajectory. Anyway, does that make sense to you guys? All right. Now, at the same time, I just want you to know that I'm not, you know, I'm not just sitting here and help fire and brimstoning people. Uh, We offer the gospel, right? We're, We're doing the same thing. But David Pallison said this. It's really helpful. Ministry imbalances the truth. Uh, for the sake of application, right? You, you, you know the full orb of reality is, yeah, you'll go to hell if you don't repent, but Jesus died for your sins, so come follow him, right? That's the full truth. But sometimes we imbalance the truth because we can't say everything, and we want to move people to obey, just like Jesus did here. Okay, what about same-sex attraction? How can you use the judgment of God, uh, the justice of God, to counsel someone uh, against same-sex attraction? Romans 1, that's a great. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. That's true. There are two texts that we usually go to. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? What are the unrighteous? Well, do not be deceived. And here's the point. Don't be deceived because most people are deceived about it. Right? The tendency is for you to be deceived about it. Why? Because... You have, you're not, you don't have proper fear of God and you're sort of making God into your own image and surely God has a wideness in his mercy and he's going to forgive me of all these things. I'll just live like I want to live. Don't be deceived, says Paul. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. So the active and passive partners in same-sex relationships, 
Uh, nor adulterers, idolaters, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, nor swindlers. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, what does that mean? What are the options? You inherit the kingdom of God or you don't. Right? Here's the wonderful hope for you, though. Such were some of you. It doesn't have to stay this way. You can change. You can change. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. It doesn't have to stay this way. All right? It's not just homosexuals in this list, right? It's adulterers, too. Right? You're perpetually committing adultery. Well, Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, or you're going to go to hell. If you live in unrepentant sin, don't deceive yourself that you're a Christian. Christians don't live this way. People who live the way you're living, they go to hell. All right? We're not perfect. All right? We're repentant. All right? And we, I often say that. I, I am not perfect. Right? The only difference between you and me right now in one sense is that I'm on this side of the desk and you're over there. All right? You could counsel me. So I need counsel in other areas of my life. But right now we're here because of this issue. And I'm bringing the word to God to bear on this issue. And this is what God has to say. All right. Make sense? Okay. Now, clearly, we're underneath the judgment of God. So if you're thinking this guy sounds harsh, this is the topic we're under. But God is not only judge, right? All right, what about a lack of holiness, laziness in a counselee? I want you to turn with me. Well, I put it up here for you, for your convenience. How do we motivate a lazy counselee? You got a guy that's just not pursuing personal holiness. A girl who's just like, ah, kind of cavalier. Ah, I go to church sometimes, but you know, I'm not, I don't want to be too serious about Christianity. Well, listen to this. Uh, Peter says, don't be conformed to the former lust, which, which, which was yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, and this is theology, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves. Here's the command. Be holy. And all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now here's the leveraging of the fear of God, putting the fear of God to work. If you address As the father or as father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's or one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Let me give you a little translation here. If you are a Christian, you call God father, right? That's what Christians do. Here you are, first Peter. Remember, this is exile. Christians are in exile. They're under persecution. Life is really hard. What happens when life is really hard and the pressure is on? What's in your heart comes out, and usually that's not very pretty for us, right? When the pressure is on, we see what's in our heart, and it's ugly, which drives us to Jesus. What Peter does here is says, as the pressure is on, right, you're in this hard climate, if you call on him, the one, if you call on God as Father, he doesn't say, don't worry about it, just relax. He's your Father, he takes care of all of it. Just relax. What does he say? Conduct yourself in fear during the time of your exile or your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. But notice he says, the father, you call upon on him as father who impartially judges according to each one's work. In other words, just because he's your father doesn't mean you get, a, you get a pass to just be lazy. No. 
we all have to strive, context, right, to be holy. That's the command. Be holy. So you don't get to say, well, God is my loving father and he'll forgive me, so I don't have to do it. No. If you call on him as father, one who judges impartially, conduct yourself in fear. So counselee, you got to get it together. All right? God judges impartially. You're telling me that you're his, but you, you're not reading your Bible for months at a time. Right? You, you won't read one chapter a day for me, and this you know, goes on for three weeks. I can't get you to read one chapter. This is concerning for me. And I just want to bring you to a passage that helps you to see that the reason I'm concerned is not because I want you to do what I want you to do, but because now I'm suspicious that you might not even be a real Christian. Right? Of course, context demands how you leverage that, but this is what we do. All right. Now, I've got, I could go on and on, uh, but I think you get the point on judgment. I don't want to have you guys leave here thinking that we're all judgment, no gospel, Calvary Bible Church. Uh, what about the providence of God? All right? We want to bring theology to bear on the life of our counselees. How do we bring the providence of God to bear? What is the providence of God? Well, uh, I'll give you a couple of, these are just straight from passages. God cares for the well-being of every living thing. Uh, God directs the ocean tides, the wind, and the rain. Uh, God directs the stars, Isaiah 40:26. God provides food for the sparrows, clothing for the flowers. Right. In a word, God's providence is His shepherding care of His people. Right. He's the good shepherd. Uh, God's providence is His meticulous oversight and arrangement of all events. Um, all, all actions of kings and servants for the good of his people and his own glory. Right, that's God's providence. Romans 8.28 captures it well. All right? Now, how do we bring that to bear? Did you guys get all that? I realize I didn't put those in your notes. I'm sorry. All right. Next time I'll do better. This is new for me, by the way. So be, be gracious. Okay, good. We share those uh, with one another. You're going to be intimately acquainted by the end of these three weekends, especially in a tight room like this, that's for sure. I'm sure you'll exchange phone numbers. All right, application. How do we put this theology to work? You guys know this. You don't need me to tell you this. How do we put the providence of God, that theological reality, how do you put that to work in the life of a counselee? What you got? With anxiety. Oh, yeah, first, yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, I, let's turn there. I don't think that's in my notes, but let's turn to First Peter 5 because that has been a sweet, sweet text for me. First Peter 5. It's like Bible drill and I'm losing. First Peter 5. Uh, verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting on all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That is the providence of God in a sentence. Verse 6, though, this is what's really striking. Humble yourselves under what? The mighty hand of God. All right, the mighty hand of God. This is a theme throughout Scripture, the hand of God. Right, uh, We could trace that out, but I did not put that in my lecture. 
but God's hand at work. You have to see that in every facet of your own life. God's hand is at work. He's sovereignly orchestrating all the affairs of men. He is accomplishing his purposes. All right? So uh, let's do this one. Irritability, anger, impatience. First Peter 5, 6, and 7 is going to bleed over into this one. Um, how do you apply the providence of God? How do you apply First Peter 5, 6, and 7? All right, we just read it. How do we put that to work in the life of an irritable person? And just so you know, an irritable person is essentially an angry person. Uh, they're irritable because things don't go their way. Right? You're, when you're irritable, uh, you're angry in your heart because things aren't going your way. Right? The faucet's still leaking. The dog is still barking. The kids are still throwing stuff. The Legos were left out on the floor. Right? Why is it that the world doesn't go exactly how I want it to go? Right? That's, <laughs> that's right. So let's bring that to bear on someone who's irritable, angry, or impatient. What could you do with First Peter 5? What's your name, brother? Ryan. Where are you from? Ron? Ronnie. Ronnie. You look so familiar. I think I may have met you before. We'll catch up after this. Um, how would you bring, you said this is God's plan. How, how might we bring 1 Peter 5, or first, is it 1 Peter 5? Yeah, 6 to 7, to bear on someone who is angry, irritable, just generally frustrated with things. Yeah. Yeah, that's certainly true, and that goes into the kind of the um, humility. Yeah. Yeah. Which tells me, if I have a problem in my heart with uh, what Ronnie said is God's plan, uh, God's plan for me today, if He sovereignly orchestrates all the events of my life, Psalm one thirty nine sixteen says that He wrote down. Uh, every one of my days as before there, as there, there was yet one of them. So before any of my days have been lived, God wrote this day for me. So you were written in that you would have Randy Barlow going in between Terry Inns and Randy Patton. All right? No one wants to be there, but I'm here. Uh, all right? This was written for you. Uh, and it was written for me too, for my own good. Now, if I kick against that, what am I doing? I'm trying to be in, in, in control. Now, what does that tell me about my theology? I have a worship problem, and I think, who's God? You. Me. I think I would be a better God than the God who wrote this day. Well, and it's lack of trust in who is in control of the day. That's right. But as we work there, it starts with that knowledge. Who's in charge? Like you said, who's in charge? God's in charge. Okay, is God good or bad? Is he loving? Is he for me against me? He's for me. He's with me, right? So I fear him because he's in charge. He will judge me if I don't submit to him. Uh... He loves me, though. He's provided an atonement for me. Okay, I, I want to live for him in this messed up day. That is my day, right? I want to honor him today because I know this is about him and not about me. All right, so irritability really is an issue of your own heart. You think you're God. You think you should be God. Uh, so that's one way we could minister the word there. Oh, I jumped ahead of myself, but I already said that. Psalm 139, 13 to 16. God formed your days. Submit to them, right? joyfully, humbly submit yourself under the mighty hand of God. If you do that, friend, I will promise you, you will not be angry. 
you will gladly submit and receive whatever God brings you. All right? It's a wonderful thing. It really is a wonderful thing. John Calvin, one of my favorite theologians, said this, Nothing is more useful than this doctrine, the doctrine of God's providence. Nothing's more useful than this. Ignorance of providence is the greatest of all miseries, and the knowledge of it, the highest happiness. Right? Highest happiness. You want to live a, a joyful life? Live your life humbly submitted to the mighty hand of God. And you'll skip through life. Right? There's a song I've been singing recently, and I'm getting off track. But it's, uh, how, can I, um, how can I keep from singing? Right? Um, how can I keep from singing? It's an old song. Audrey Assad uh, just produced, uh, I think in 2016, a version of it. It's really good. The Lord is king. Jesus is on his throne. How can I keep from singing? Anything that happens has been filtered through his loving hands. Now take that, friends, and minister that to a counselor. Minister to your own heart, right? See people change. It's wonderful. This is the God we get to set before people. It's a wonderful privilege. Okay, I'm getting excited. All right, the goodness of God. All right, uh, the goodness of God. God is good and does good. Psalm 119.68. Every good, things, good thing comes from him. James 1.17. Right? He's the father of lights. All right? He gives everything good. It's all coming from him. It's all his. Strikingly, God is even good to those who hate him. Matthew 5.45. He's, he's good to the evil. Causes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust. All right. But you say, they were just too mean to me. Uh, I can never forgive them for what they did. I could never be kind to them. Well, uh, that's why you're not God, and it's good that you're not. Because uh, God is kind to people who hate him. And you know how we know that? Because Romans 3 said you used to hate him. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But he changed your heart. And... Uh, he can change your heart in this scenario. All right, I'm getting ahead of myself again. Application. <clears throat> what about with pornography? This is an interesting one. Um, the goodness of God. How do we minister the goodness of God uh, with someone who's enslaved to pornography? Well, it's amazing. Turn to Ephesians 5, and I'm going to run out of time. Um, maybe I have it here for you. Okay, praise the Lord, I have it here for you. Um, it's striking. Paul calls in Ephesians 5, he calls the Christians to flee immorality, to be um, pure and holy, to lay aside greed and filth. And he says, rather than all of that thing, those things, put on the giving of thanks. All right, so rather than being enslaved to pornography, or rather than being, uh, he says, given to immorality, impurity, he's talking about sexual immorality, Focus on giving thanks. Pornography is a gratitude issue, among other things, but it's a gratitude issue. Uh, Proverbs 5 uh, tells the husband, specifically, to be um, thankful and grateful and to enjoy his wife. All right, you go looking for something else, Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. It's a gratitude problem. It's a theology issue. Right? Focus on your wife. Focus on your husband. Find your satisfaction in him, but ultimately go through the stream, right, all the way up, up to the fountain, which is God, who gave you this spouse. He decreed it. He fixed it. Psalm 139.16. You can't change it. Bow to it. Enjoy it. He gives good things. All right, he's a good God. 
Uh, what about an apathetic, hesitant counselee? I had, I had one of these recently. Um, I've been one of these myself. Um, how do we move them to do what God wants them to do? Well, in this case, uh, this guy, I think he just didn't know God. He didn't understand that God was a rewarder of those who seek him. He thought he could have more joy by living in his own world. Right? By constructing a world of his own, he could have more happiness, more joy. So what we set out to do? Well, set God's goodness before him. Showing that God is a far more generous giver of good things than he could ever find on his own. And he's changing by God's grace. Just met today. Praise the Lord. Um, God is a rewarder of those who seek him. All right, so we could go through the sovereignty of God, but we don't have time. God does whatever he wants to do. Um, don't worry. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Sorry. I don't want to get in Randy Patton's way. Um, let me cycle through it. Okay, two texts. And I tell you what, my email is on that handout I sent you. If you email me, I can email you this PowerPoint, and you can get it out there. Sound good? All right, application to God's sovereignty. You guys know this. Um, God does what he wants, and he's good and wise. So bow to it, trust him, love him, live for him. Uh, this is a great text, Ecclesiastes 7, 13 to 14. Consider the work of God. Who is able to straighten what he has bent? He's bent it. Don't try to un- unbend it. You can't do it. Right? You can't fix it. All right? You can't change it. This is God's sovereign decree. Bow to it. Um, and, and Solomon says, but in the day of adversity, oh, so in the day of prosperity, be happy. Praise God for peaceful times that God has bent. He's made them this way. Praise God for them. But when things are hard, remember God made the good day and the bad day. Right? This is all theology issues. All right. All right. Wisdom of God. All right, here we go. This is where I was trying to get to. Wisdom, love, sovereignty. You can work your way through each one of these attributes and do exactly what I just did. And when you do that, you are setting before your counselee the living God. And just like Isaiah, when you see the living God, things change. All of a sudden, you, you, you know him in a fresh way. You fear him. Appropriately. You now all of a sudden have the wisdom for life you need because you fear him. But you love him. Right? You guys know that. When you know him, you love him. Uh, our God is a good, <clears throat> good God. Uh, and I think we'll spend eternity just basking in his goodness. But then you, you trust him. When you know him, you love him, you fear him, you trust him, obey him. And then you bring him maximum glory. All right? So... Biblical counseling and the doctrine of God, it's really simple. Set God before your counselee and then see them change. It's wonderful. All right, the Lord bless you. Great to meet you.